In the New Testament, God's nature is revealed as triune, one being existing as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In today's episode, we're going to see how the Old Testament paints pictures of this reality and gives us hints as to the personal nature of the Holy Spirit. Hey everybody, welcome to the Dance of Life podcast. My name is Tudor Alexander and I'm your host. Thanks so much for joining me today on our series with the Trinity. Now today's episode is a bit of a standalone episode because we're talking about a very interesting and really kind of, I don't want to say obscure, but a difficult topic, which is the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. So we haven't had too many episodes on this. We had an episode very early on in the series, which I'll mention uh, in a few minutes, just to kind of review on the Father and the Son, or the Father and the Spirit as both God and also separate persons within the Trinity. So if you are new to this series, if you're new to this topic, then that is definitely going to be the context, because we want to use the New Testament to interpret the old. A lot of people make a lot of different kinds of errors today because they do it the other way around. They use the Old Testament to interpret the new. You have new revelation in the New Testament, and so you use that to go back to the Old Testament to realize the pictures and shadows that are being painted in those older texts. Now, again, the Holy Spirit is probably the least understood and least described person in the Trinity. And so this is going to be a very interesting episode because we're going with that. And we're also going into the Old Testament, which again, the Old Testament is very much about shadows and types and mysteries. So it's going to be an ultra mysterious episode. Very interesting stuff to me personally. I think it's just so interesting to go back and try to find these things and, and search for them with the revelation that we have from the New Testament. So again, if you are just new to this series, make sure you go check out that first episode because there's a lot of important things we establish in the very beginning of this series with the Holy Spirit as a person that is separate from the Father and the Son and also as God, meaning divine. So very, very important. We look at both of those things. We even look at does the Spirit proceed from just the Father or both from the Father and the Son? What is, what is that like? Because some religions like Catholicism and I believe Orthodoxy, I might be wrong about Catholicism, I'll have to double check that, but I know for Orthodoxy for sure, they believe that the Spirit only proceeds from the Father, which is because they are monarchical Trinitarians, which is going to be a topic that we'll talk about in like two weeks in this series. And not the next episode, we're talking about heresies. But the episode after that, because monarchical Trinitarianism, it's not, I mean, I don't know. It really depends how how blunt you want to be. You could call it a heresy, and there's very good reason for that. Or you could just call it a false doctrine. But either way, it's not the truth. So ultimately, we're going to look at that because it concerns probably about a billion people, at least in the world, who believe this idea of monarchical Trinitarianism. What does it say about Christ, if that's the truth? And so... Or I should say, if that's what you believe, because it's not the truth. But today we're talking about the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. And I want to give you a little bit of review, all the things that we've mentioned in that episode, and even throughout this whole series, which is very, very important to go into this episode today. Because again, we're going into murky waters. Of course, we have the light of the New Testament with us, but we're going into murky waters. The Old Testament is shadows and types. So it's very important to remember some of the following. All the spirits in the Bible are always personal. There's never such thing 
mentioned as an impersonal force, as just an impersonal spirit. They're always personal. When the spirits come up to God, they ask, when God says, who am I going to send to be a lying spirit to these various advisors and, and kings to confound them? There's spirits that volunteer. When Jesus exercises the spirits and the demoniac, they have a name, but they call themselves legion. It's a personal situation. Spirits are always personal. So for some reason, people think that when we're talking about the spirit of God, that it it's like a force or some sort of metaphysical situation between the father and the son type of thing. And we're going to look at that in the next episode on heresies, because one of the heresies is binatarianism, which is believing that, okay, the father and the son are divine, but the Holy Spirit is not a person. And you have serious problems if he's not. If you deny the personhood of the Holy Spirit, you have a lot of doctrinal issues, especially with salvation. And that's what, that's why it's a heresy. And that's why we'll look at it next time. Because the Holy Spirit is easy to write off as not a person, especially if you're using the Old Testament to interpret the New. Because the New, <laughs> the New Testament, excuse me, is very much a lot of evidence and documentation that he is a person and he's separate from the Father and the Son and he's also God. Not so much in the Old Testament at all, obviously. But if you're using the Old Testament to interpret the New, then that will lead you into error. But nonetheless, spirits are personal. The Spirit is acknowledged as separate from the Father and the Son. There's masculine pronouns used to refer to the Spirit, like he, him, uh, just like the Father and the Son. He's called the Advocate by John. Now, the Advocate is a masculine noun. It's very important. Could have been a feminine word. But the advocate is a masculine noun, and it's used for the spirit. The spirit showed self-awareness, emotions. He gives commands. He has a will. We'll look at some of these things again today, but we'll see how they compare to the Old Testament. And the spirit is referred to as God. Peter and Ananias, when the whole donation situation happened, Peter says, you've lied to God but he was lying to the Holy Spirit. So there's that parallel as well. And of course, the Spirit has to be God because he's separate from the Father and for the Son for many reasons, which we'll discuss a little bit today, but mostly next time with the heresies. Because other people either, either they say, oh, the Spirit's not a person, or there's not three people. It's modalism or Unitarianism. So you have a lot of these variations of beliefs trying to fit God into an understandable box because the Holy Spirit is mysterious, especially in the Old Testament. But again, that's why we have the New Testament. We have the revelation of the Messiah, of the nature of God working in reality as a triune being, which is just so profound. And it's so beautiful too, because it gives you such grace and peace with the, with the plan of salvation the fact that you have a triune God makes everything make sense. And we looked at that in the episode early on in this series on the Trinity and salvation. So go check that out. A lot of people just think that these things are boring or maybe not very relevant, but they're actually so relevant and so powerful for your faith to know that the gospel is Trinitarian in nature, and it has to be. And what does that mean for your life if the gospel is Trinitarian? What does it mean if the Father is drawing you to Christ? And no man can come to Christ unless the Father draws him. What does it mean that Christ is interceding for you? 
What does it mean that the Holy Spirit is conforming you? What does it mean that you have the triune God doing all of these things to you and for you before time, during time, and ahead of time in the future? What does that mean? What does the action of the Trinity mean? It means you have complete security in God's work, which a lot of people unfortunately don't have. And the gospel is about security. It's about trusting in God because his purpose will not be foiled. So today our goal is to use what we know from the New Testament and go back to the Old Testament and see what we can find. This is going to be more of an adventure. It's not an exhaustive thing of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. It's really just to show you, first and foremost, that the Bible is consistent. But it's really kind of a fun adventure to see what can we find knowing what we know now with the New Testament going back to the Old Testament, which is, to me, it's very interesting and it's very fun too. But many people, again, use the Old Testament to interpret the New, and you should not do that. When you do that, you are going backwards. You're inverting the truth. So if you're living through the Old Testament, I mean, look at all the look at all the false doctrines out there. And I've talked about some of these, like dispensationalism, sacred name people, Hebrew roots, you know, legalism. All these things are basically people living in the Old Testament and, and refusing to, to acknowledge what the New Testament has revealed. So we have to be very careful. But a fun fact... Before we get started with some of these items, which is just, again, this is not an exhaustive list, but it's enough to make you think and to go back on your own. That's my goal is really for you to go back, get some curiosity, go back. And when you read through the Bible again and you pass through the Old Testament to to see these instances of the Spirit of God being mentioned with new eyes, that's the goal really today. But fun fact that the word for spirit, both in Greek and in Hebrew. So in Hebrew, it's ruah. And in Greek, it's pneuma, P-N-E-U-M-A. Both of these are words that are used also for breath and for the wind, which is very interesting. So just kind of put that on the back burner. I also mentioned very early on in this series when we talked about the Holy Spirit and the Father being separate persons. I think it was episode two or three. I forget which one. But we, we use this metaphor of the speaker like when I'm speaking to you right now, you could kind of divide me into three functions. I'm, I have a body. I have, I'm the speaker, the person, right? I'm speaking to you words that you can hear that are coming out of my mouth. They're, they're physical vibrations in the air. And then I have breath, which is used to, to, to create those words. Now, within a person like me or you, of course, these are all part of one person. With God, he's in a different dimension of existence. He's beyond all comprehension. So for him, the speaker, the breath, and the word are all persons. He's one being, like I'm a person, I'm a single person, with three of these. Of course, this is a failed metaphor. It's like, no metaphor you can use is a perfect metaphor. So don't take this completely, like literally. Because again, you can't split God up into different parts. There's, there's an inseparability of God. But nonetheless, God has clearly distinctions within himself, which is again, the mystery. He's completely, there's no separation in God. He doesn't have separate parts like we have cells or organs. He's not separate and you can't split him up into parts. This is one of the heresies actually. It's called partialism. We'll talk about it next time. But 
he does have distinction. He has, the, and even in the Old Testament, we saw that with the angel of Yahweh. We saw that with the word and the name that we looked at. Those are very interesting episodes. And of course, those were about Christ and the Son and the Father. But the Holy Spirit is also distinct. And we'll see that hopefully in this episode as we look at these motifs and themes in the Old Testament. But breath and the wind, which again, is just so interesting. So the first one is God's breath as the Holy Spirit. The, the breath, again, the speaker, the Father, the Word is the Son, and the breath is the Holy Spirit. Kind of a just an interesting way to think about it. But again, don't take it too far because it's a failed metaphor. All metaphors of God will be limited to some degree. But in Genesis 1 verse 1, it says very classically, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was out form and void, darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So the Spirit of God was there at the beginning of creation. He was hovering over the face of the waters, and he was involved in the creative act. Very, very interesting. Chapter later, when the when man is created, and the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man and the man became a living creature. Now, this to me is a very fascinating parallel to John twenty chapter chapter twenty verse twenty two, when Jesus says, "He breathed." He when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, "Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld." So. You have a parallel between the creation of man physically, where God breathes into him the breath of life through the Holy Spirit. And then you have sort of the, the new creation, sort of not the new creation in Revelation, I'm just saying like being born again, where the apostles receive the Holy Spirit and, and God is kind of redoing, or not redoing, but you know, recreating them in a sense, right? He's he's putting this new life into them through the Holy Spirit. Fascinating thing how the Bible is just so consistent like that and how it sets up these pictures and shadows and types and then reveals them in Christ. It's just so fascinating. I, I think you could spend your entire life looking at these parallels and digging through these just these fascinating connections and you would never be done. You would never be done. There's just so many. But breath of life throughout the Old Testament is a constant theme of the Holy Spirit. We know in Psalm, for example, 33, verse 6, that it says, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. Now, this is another interesting thing going back to that metaphor, which again, it's a failed metaphor, but just kind of try to use it to understand the, the mystery and the dynamic nature of God's being as three, per, as three persons in one being. Speaker, word, and breath. Now, in this psalm, it says, By the word of Yahweh, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. So, to me, like that's right there, this whole metaphor in one psalm. Because if you remember from the previous episodes where we talked about the word, the word and the name, how even the, the Israelites of the Old Testament and the Jews leading up until basically like a century after Christ, they believed in the plurality of God. They believed angel of Yahweh was God. You had two powers in heaven that you had that whole teaching. And then you also had this idea of the word, that the word had to be, the word of God was personified. 
and he had to be distinct from God because God you can't see and he's he's you know he, you can't see him anywhere. He's not in the physical world and yet he's everywhere at the same time. But then you have this manifestation of God who is doing things and leading the Israelites out of Egypt and creating the world. Well, the word created the world. That's why John, the first chapter of John, plays off of these attitudes. So anybody who, who denies the divinity of Jesus, and there are plenty of people, they are not in alignment with history. The Jews believed in a plurality of God, that there were two powers in heaven. Whether it was the word or the angel of Yahweh, you had this idea that there was a personified Yahweh that you could see. And of course, some people, you know, in the Old Testament, you believe that if you saw that person, you would die. But ultimately, you you could see God. You, there was a manifestation of God. So in this psalm, it says, by the word of Yahweh, the heavens were created. Now that, on the surface level, means, sure, God spoke these things into existence. But again, deeper context, historical context, cultural context, there's also the idea that the word is the one who created the universe, and the word is Jesus, the Son, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. So you had the word of God, which is the Son, Jesus, and then you have the breath, which is the Spirit, which is just, it's just so fascinating to, to see these realities being painted in the Old Testament. In Psalm 104, verse 30, it says, When you send forth your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the ground. So the spirit, again, is very associated with life, creation, basically giving giving and taking away life. Job 33, verse 4, The spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. A lot of stuff in Job about life, about death, about the spirit, how God could literally just if he wanted to take away his spirit and everything would just die. Very fascinating. And we'll talk about that actually in the series on the afterlife, which is coming up here pretty soon. I'm very excited for it. So stay tuned for that because there's a lot that people have been deceived on when it comes to what happens after death. But in this particular verse, in Job 33 verse 4, Elihu is speaking. And it's very interesting because Elihu was the only one that wasn't rebuked by God. So he was essentially correct in what he said. So when he said, the spirit of God has made me and the breath of the almighty gives me life. This is, we can take this as like, okay, this is correct teaching. Some of the things that his other friends were saying to Job, God rebuked them for it because they didn't understand God's sense of justice, God's plan, God's way of doing things. But Elihu spoke correctly and he speaks that the spirit is the one who gives life. Of course, compare this to the New Testament where Jesus says in John 6, verse 63, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I've spoken to you are spirit and life. So the spirit is very consistently associated with not just creation, but really giving life. Life is the one of the central identifying qualities of who God is. He brings life to things. He brings life from nothing to something. That's just a mystery. It's a profound mystery. Even look at, for example, life today. We don't, this is the thing that I say to atheists, and I encourage you with your atheist friends, but most of them, look, most of them are just stubborn. It's, it's <laughs> With atheism, it's not the evidence that's the issue. It's a heart issue. Atheism is not, 
a rational position at all. It's actually the most irrational thing you could possibly believe. It takes way more faith to be an atheist than it does to be a Christian. I can guarantee you that. Way more faith. You have to con- you have to live in such cognitive dissonance with the evidence around you for a creator. Never mind, doesn't matter like what the nature of that creator is or how he is, but just simply that this was not happening here by accident. There is so much cognitive dissonance you have to live with and constantly fool yourself and lie to yourself and try to escape the the natural tug that your conscience has to to say, listen, there's a creator. There's something, something created this. Someone created this. It's not just it came out of nothing. But atheism, this is this is ultimately the most irrational position there is. And when you have atheist friends, you, you look at them and you say, look, what is, how, how did you get here, right? What, what, how did, what is the origin story of atheism? Because the Bible gives you a very simple and profound answer that we were created. We were created for God's glory, for God's image. We have a high definition of life and it explains everything that you see. But atheism, of course, is very irrational and it's about rebellion. It's really about a hardened heart. So pray for your atheist friends and pray that the Holy Spirit does open their eyes because a lot of people are hardened of heart today. And it's just sad to see so many. I just recently, in fact, today I just recently read a, a list of supposed atheist quotes, like famous atheist philosophers, even like Satanists, like Anton LaVey and stuff, like famous last words before they died. And it's just so horrible so horrible just to see the the realization like many of them most of them realized that okay i i was barking up the wrong tree my entire life and i'm done for i'm going to be destroyed just so sad and ultimately that can be prevented now of course there's god's will and all these things and he's going to save who he's chosen to save but we don't know who that is and so from our perspective we have to strive to spread the truth But the Spirit is intimately connected with life. He brings life from nothing. He resurrects. This is what I was going to say. I totally forgot my train of thought a little bit, minutes, a couple minutes earlier. But with atheism, one of the things that you can say to your atheist friends is how, excuse me, how is life created? How does it work? You ever, you ever actually think about that? Like at what point do inanimate things like amino acids and phospholipids and, you know, whatever, all these different components, at what point do they become alive and start being animated? What animates us? What animates us? What makes these things go? They haven't been able to figure that out. You, you cannot reproduce life, the miracle of life. It's, it's not this chemical reaction where you say, okay, well, if you have these components and in these circumstances and this happens, then there you go. That's life. No, it's not. They've tried. (laughs) They cannot find the animating force, the animating power behind that, because that is a mystery. Life itself is not the summation of parts. We have a lot of machinery. And certainly when that machinery fails, eventually life is lost as well. But that is, life is not a mechanical thing. Life is a mystery. 
So science can't even answer the most fundamental question of existence, which is how does life work? How does it work? How do we have these little machines in us like cells? And at what point does consciousness begin? At what point does our self-awareness happen? How, like, it's just, it's all so fascinating. If you've really studied biology and anatomy, you know, I like to do that. I'm a certified health coach, so I've really dug deep into a lot of like cellular mechanics and things like that. Not that I'm, you know, some genius at that stuff, but really it's just so fascinating. I just think I read that stuff and it's just, to me, it reveals the glory of God and it reveals the mystery of life, which is this Holy Spirit that, that God, the Bible tells you very plainly that, that the reason you live is because of God. If God so chose, he could pull his spirit away from creation and everything would die immediately. There is no being. In Psalm 33, um, what are we, 33 verse 6 that we just read, that by the breath, the, the heavenly host was made, meaning even angels and spiritual principalities are sustained by God. Hebrews 1 verse 3 says he sustains the world by the word of his power. In Job, I, I didn't cite the verse here because it's in another place, but in Job it talks about how if he were, if he wanted to, he could withdraw his spirit and all flesh would cease. Everything would cease. So there is this intimate connection that we have to God through the Holy Spirit, whether you're wicked or not, <laughs> which is interesting. I'm not saying the wicked have the Holy Spirit. I'm saying that, that there is a fundamental level of involvement by the Holy Spirit that all of creation Necess necessarily has. The Holy Spirit is the one who gives life, who sustains life, who animates dead things into a living being. And so even the wicked who are cursing God and denying God, they are being sustained by the Spirit of God, which is just like, it's so fascinating. It really is so fascinating to think. And again, it brings you back to marveling at the nature of God, at his mercy, at all that he does for humanity and all that he's done. So the spirit is very intimately involved with creation and also very intimately involved with life. Now we also see this parallel of the spirit giving talents. There's a lot of verses like these. I've just picked out one. This is from Exodus chapter 31, um, one through six, where basically the tabernacle is basically being built and God finds people to build it. The Lord says to Moses, see, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri and son of Hur of the tribe of Judah. And I have filled him with the spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze and cutting stones for setting and in carving wood to work in every craft. And behold, I have appointed with him Oholiab, the son of Ahisamach of the tribe of Dan. And I have given to all able men ability that they may be, that they may make all that I have commanded you. So you have, again, this, this tabernacle that's being built, very specific divine designs, very beautiful architecture and a lot of complex designs. And we see that the Holy Spirit is intimately involved with these skills, this skillful craftsmanship with talents, with intelligence, creativity, uh, knowledge. It's just so fascinating. Again, it's, this is life. This is the central aspect of who God is, which is life. And of course, with life comes many things. It comes, you know, life force, intelligence, creativity, 
all these things that we would associate to life. Somebody who's, you know, like, uh, whatever, you know, just they don't have any life in them. They're just checked out of reality. They don't have any inspiration. They don't have any desire or drive. They're not, they're not in tune with their creativity. They're not, they're not in, you know, there's no life there. That's what we would say somebody who's just kind of dead inside, right? Well, the Bible tells you in the Old Testament, and we'll see here really quickly in the New Testament, that that life is from the Holy Spirit. That those skills and talents that you have, that's been given to you by, by God. Now we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 11, that Paul writes, All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit, who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Now this is an important proof text we talked about in the earlier episode on the Holy Spirit being personal. A, a f- force does not have a will. A force is not a personal pronoun that has a will to do things. Okay, the Spirit is a person who has a will and he, and he apportions to each one individually what he decides. It is his will what he gives people. Some people are very talented in playing the piano and painting. Some people are very talented homemakers. Some people are very talented public speakers. Some people are very talented engineers and they could you know, unpack things very quickly. So we each have various talents. And those talents, whatever skills you may have, social skills, math skills, whatever, those are from the Holy Spirit that he has willed to give you. Now, of course, most people don't use their talents as they should, which is, what is the point of a talent or a skill or wisdom or knowledge? It's ultimately to glorify God. It is to glorify God so that you may have joy in your relationship with the Lord and get to know God more because he's the source of all these things. But of course, man has fallen victim to the idea that we have life in ourself. This is the lie from the Garden of Eden. This is why all the occult people have the Ouroboros symbol, the snake eating its own tail. This is the mentality of the New Age movement. This is the idea that you have life within yourself. You are the cause. And you don't need God. Well, of course, that's completely the opposite of the truth. We are completely dependent on God. He sustains us, even the wicked he sustains until the day of wrath. And the Holy Spirit is the one who gives talents, and most people, of course, aren't either in tune with their talents or they use their talents for evil. Look at all these Hollywood people that have, you know, been given certain talents, maybe to sing, to play an instrument, maybe they're charismatic in some way, and they're using it for totally the wrong purpose, to glorify the devil instead, which is just... It's just a shame. Again, it shows you that man must be born again. Man must be submitted to God's will. So there is a sense that everybody who's been given talents, all these things are from God. But not everybody has been born again, which is a which is another level of involvement of the Holy Spirit that isn't for everybody. The Holy Spirit doesn't cause everybody to be born again. This is the the fascinating thing. Yes, the Spirit gives life to everybody in the sense that God animates all beings. Yes, every human being is made in the image of God. We have talents like intelligence, wisdom, creativity, you know, sense of nurturing, whatever. Those are talents that everybody has in a different amount, according to the Holy Spirit. But there is also the sense of being born again, which is not for everybody. 
It's, a, it's an intimate involvement with the Spirit that not everybody has. And when we're born again, of course, we have, we're given talents as well. We're giving, we're given skills and wisdom and knowledge. And I believe we're also given the, the awareness on how to use the existing talents that God gave us by default for his glory. In my own example, I can testify of that. I, I was doing podcasting. I had a podcast for many years. I do graphic design. I mean, I used to be an artist. I used to draw and sketch quite a lot as a kid and as a teenager. I, d I did a lot of artistic, artsy things, but I never really used them for anything glorifying to God. I used to draw like demons and, you know, just typical teenage angst type of stuff. And now I realize doing the thing that I'm doing with you now, which is this show, this podcast, whatever you want to call it, it's been a great realization moment to see all of the things in my life have prepared me for this moment. God had, had choreographed all these things in my life. And even though I didn't use the skills for most of my life to glorify him, they were there nonetheless ready to be activated. So that when I saw Christ for who he is and I became born again, that all of these things were now there and I could use them. And it's been quite the journey ever since. So your gifts and your talents, everybody has gifts and talents. Especially once you come to Christ and you're born again, God gives you and opens up your heart and gives you new wisdom, new intelligence, new creativity, new inspiration. So if you're feeling uninspired, if you're feeling discouraged, if you're feeling, you know, like, gosh, I don't really have any talents, then pray about it. And also, if, if you need some encouragement, go to my website, danceoflife.com. You're going to see a whole page there for encouragement. A lot of encouraging audios, free. You can listen to them. Very biblically based on the gospel, on grace. You can listen to the Psalms. You can listen to the book of Proverbs. And spend time in prayer because the Holy Spirit gives to everybody as he wills. That means he's given you something. And if you're having a hard time finding it, then that means you need to pray and connect to God because everybody has some talents. Now, another one is the Holy Spirit as a helper. Now, this is an interesting connection because we know, of course, in the New Testament, John 14, uh, verse 16, it says, and I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, personal pronoun. You know him for he dwells with you and will be with you. So he's a person that dwells, forces don't dwell with you. Forces are not helpers. And this person is separate from Christ because obviously he's talking about a different person. So it's very, very interesting. But the helper is the Holy Spirit. It's the sense of the helper. And there's a connection to the Old Testament where in Hosea 13, 9, it says, now I'm going to look at the KJV for this because I think the ESV in this case is actually not translated that well. But KJV says, O Israel, thou hast destroyed thyself, but in me is thine help. So in the KJV, it says that basically God is the one who, who's, who's the helper. And the ESV translated as, he destroys you, O Israel, for you are against me, against your helper. So it's not the strongest textual link, but we know from other places, of course, that God is the God of salvation. God is the one who is 
who you reach out to for help. Obviously, there's nobody else. Every time people did that and they reached out to the Egyptians, to other gods, they were very sorely mistaken. But God's the helper. And of course, in, in this Old Testament prophecy through Hosea, it's Yahweh that's speaking. But Yahweh is multipersonal. We already know that from the Old Testament, from the angel of Yahweh, from the word and the name, from all the things we looked at in the past. So Yahweh is multipersonal. And he is the helper. He's the help that you reach out to. And yet in the New Testament, Jesus says that he's going to send the helper, which is the Holy Spirit. So again, very, very interesting overlap. And you're going to see as we go through these that there is, there are these situations where there is distinction within God, like we just saw in John 14, 16. Obviously, it's a different person than Christ. Jesus is not talking about the Father. He's not talking about himself. He's talking about a different person who is also God and the helper and doing these things that God does, giving gifts as he wills. And we'll see some other examples too. But then you have situations which we'll soon see where there is this overlap of the Spirit of God being the Spirit of Christ and the Lord is the Spirit. So it's just, it's very, very fascinating. Again, God is not something we can, he's not someone that we can put in a box. So whenever we try to do that, we run into heresies, which you'll see next time. But the Spirit is the helper. Now, another one is very obvious. A lot of people know this one, but the Spirit inspires Scripture. He's, he's the breath of Scripture. In 2 Samuel 23, verse 2, it says, The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. Now, in Matthew, this is the, the thing I just quoted in Samuel is David speaking. Okay, the last words of David. Now, Matthew, or sorry, Mark uh, 12, verse 36 Jesus affirms this is David himself in the Holy Spirit declared the Lord said to my Lord sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet, which by the way, just a little interlude. If you haven't seen my end time series, please, please, please go watch that and become edified in the truth because we are in the millennial reign. This is exactly what's happening right here. Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Jesus is at the right hand of God. This is not a future millennium. That's a deception for many reasons. So go check that out. That's all I'll say about it. But Jesus affirms that David is in the Holy Spirit. We looked at other things too, how David is considered a prophet. So David is a prophet and the Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. Now, another interesting thing about this that I didn't touch on, it says the Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. Now, this is an interesting thing. It, it's... Interesting to me because it, does the word his refer to the spirit of the Lord? Or does it refer to the Lord? Well, naturally you would say the spirit of the Lord because this is all one noun. This is one title. So the spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His, who's his? His is the spirit of the Lord. His word is on my tongue. And we know when Jesus said that when that David was basically in the Holy Spirit, and there's other places too with David as a prophet. So that confirms that the Spirit of the Lord is a he who is giving the word to David because he's a prophet. Very, very interesting connections. Zechariah, another prophet, 
chapter 7, verse 12, they made their hearts diamond hard, lest they should hear the law and the words that the Lord of hosts had sent by his spirit. So his spirit through the former prophets. Therefore, great anger came from the Lord of hosts. So the prophets received the word that was sent by his spirit. The spirit is the one who sent the word, who gave the word of God, which is just, again, so interesting, especially when you remember, again, the word is personified in scripture. Maybe not necessarily in these particular verses I just cited to you, but overall, the word is personified. So how does that work? Well, you have a triune being. That's how it works, which is really, really fascinating. But the New Testament, of course, comments on this many times. In 2 Timothy 3.16, very popular verse, all scripture is breathed out by God. Again, you have the breath associated and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. But scripture is breathed. Remember we said that the spirit is the breath? The word for spirit, whether it's Hebrew or Greek, is always associated to breath or wind. Very, very interesting. So spirit is the one who speaks by the prophets. Scripture is breathed out by God. It's not written out by God. It's breathed out by God. Like right now when I'm breathing out words to you, of course, I'm not speaking scripture to you. I'm saying when I'm speaking to you on this microphone, I'm breathing out words and I'm my breath is being used to create something in the physical universe, a word that you can hear. Scripture is breathed out by God through the Holy Spirit, through his prophets. His prophets are speaking the word to the various people. Now, when I have when we just say breath, like you can't really hear breath. Breath is the life and the air behind the words. The words themselves are the vibrations. Isn't that fascinating? So the spirit is the breath and the life behind the actual words that the prophets spoke. Because the prophets actually spoke. They were the mouthpiece of God. The physical, you know, vibration, manifestation of the, of the breath of God. They spoke into the world. They spoke the word of God. Of course, they wrote it down too, but they initially spoke it. And scripture is breathed out by God. It's just so fascinating that there's that, that word there. No word is, there's no throwaway words in the Bible. Everything is very intentional, which is just very interesting when you, when you layer all these things together. In John 15, verse 26, Jesus says, but when the helper comes, again, you have that that noun is a separate person whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. Now, a couple things in this verse are very important. We talked about this in the first episode where, not the first, but probably the second or third, I forget which one, the one on the Father and Holy Spirit, where does the, does the Spirit proceed from the Father or just from the Father or from both the Father and the Son? Well, people who say just from the Father, they use a verse like this. They say, see, there you go, that's proof. The question is, do you read this as a statement of like origin or do you read this as a statement of function? For example, when the Spirit of, when the Helper comes whom I will send to you from the Father, who proceeds from the Father, does that mean, does this mean he only comes from the Father? It's a statement of function. Or does it mean, listen, this spirit, because there's a lot of spirits in the world, and the people knew that, 
People knew that there were spiritual forces and spirits and all kinds of entities and principalities. They knew that. They were very aware. Not like people today. Jesus is reassuring them this is from the source. This is from Yahweh. This is from God. Just like he said of himself, I'm from Yahweh. I am from God so that you know I'm, I am who God sent. Throughout the New Testament, Jesus has belabored when he's dealing with the apostles and dealing with the unbelieving people of his time to confirm his origin as God and from God, because that is the pure origin. There's no other, there's no other place that he could have come from. He's from God. And same thing with this line about the spirit. Is it a statement of function that the spirit only proceeds from the father, or is it a statement of origin to authenticate the Holy Spirit? And of course, if you look at other verses where Jesus says, the Father and I are one, you know, there's a lot of, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. It's very difficult to believe that the Father would have, the Father alone who, who gave everything to the Son, who wants the Son to be honored as the Father, exactly as you would honor the Father, you should honor the Son. Which again, if you deny the divinity of Christ, you're really in a pickle with that verse and many others. But if that's the case, if I and the Father are one, if you see me, you've seen the Father, if you have to honor the Son as you honor the Father, then how can we say that something as significant as the authority to send the Holy Spirit is only belonging to the Father? Doesn't make sense. So that means this verse is really more about origin to authenticate the Holy Spirit, which makes a lot more sense. But the point here that's relevant to our particular study today is he's going to bear witness about me. A force does not bear witness of you, especially a force that's called the helper. The helper, who has a personal pronoun, he's going to come and bear witness about Christ. That's a person. A person is witnessing about Christ. And that person is the Holy Spirit. Very, very important. But he's bearing witness about Jesus. So keep that in mind, because in Revelation 19, verse 10, what does it say? Then I fell down at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. Very important thing. We'll come back to this in just a second. Here's the thing I wanted to highlight. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So the Holy Spirit testifies of Jesus. All scriptures, God breathed. All of the scriptures are about Christ. And the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. All of these things tie together. The Holy Spirit is the one who testifies of Jesus as a person. And he breathed out scripture to the various prophets that together collectively would act as a witness to Christ. Didn't Jesus say in John 5, they bear witness to me? The scriptures testify of me? But yeah, the whole. if you look in the Bible, every single book has something about Jesus. It's pretty phenomenal. It's actually, to me, one of the most compelling pieces of evidence that the Bible was written by God. Is just the utmost consistency, despite how many dozens and dozens of authors from different time periods, different ways of life and thinking about things, it's incredibly consistent. It's, it's really just fascinating. But this, really quick, this line that we just read, where John falls down and worships this angel, and he says, don't worship me. 
Compare that to when we talked about the angel of Yahweh, where Joshua falls down and worships the angel of Yahweh. What does the angel of Yahweh say? Does he say, no, 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 don't do that? Worship God? No, he receives worship. He says, take your shoes off. This is holy ground. Exactly what he said to Moses at the burning bush. So again, if you deny the divinity, or I should say even the plurality of Yahweh, then you have a real problem with that situation. Because Yahweh is not someone you can see, and yet you have a Yahweh that you can see. You have two Yahwehs. So what do you do with that? Well, you do with that and you look in the New Testament, where the New Testament reveals to you that God is multi-personal as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And you go back to those verses and you say, oh, the angel of Yahweh was probably a pre-incarnate, you know, manifestation of the Son. That makes sense, totally. But of course, if you use the Old Testament to interpret the New, then you come up with all sorts of theories. Now, in Pentecost, there's a lot of themes with Pentecost and, and the beginning of the church and how that was foreshadowed in the Old Testament with God giving his Holy Spirit. Kind of the, Again, this is, was the plan from the very beginning, but there was a lot of history and context that needed to be done. In Numbers 11, verse 16 through 17, we see elders appointed to aid Moses. Then the Lord said to Moses, Gather for me 70 men of the elders of Israel, whom you know to be elders of the people and officers over them, and bring them to the tent of meeting, and let them take their stand there with you. And I will come down and talk with you there. So again, you have a personal appearance of God, which you have a real problem with if you believe that God is completely just one being that is unseen. He's going to come down and talk to Moses. And I will take some of the spirit that is on you and put it on them. And they shall bear the burden of the people with you so that you may not bear it yourself alone. So again, you have this idea of God giving the spirit, which is a new level of existence, right? It's not just sustaining you anymore. Now you, now you have the spirit, which is new life, new spiritual life. And that comes with the ability to bear the burden of whatever, in this, in this case, it was management, leadership skills. So you have life, people who, you know, you have skills and talents and leadership ability. This is life. It's from the Holy Spirit. Now, later in Numbers, in verse 29, it says, But Moses said to him, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them. Very fascinating verse. If you read that again from the context of the New Testament, it's like, yeah, that's exactly what's going to happen. Everybody's going to have the spirit, all the born-again believers, the elect of God. Not everybody in the world, but everybody who God has chosen to save, this, this plan of salvation that's coming into the world, which for Moses was over a thousand years in the future, just so far removed from his reality. That's exactly what's going to happen, Moses. So it's just a funny thing for him to say. But again, everything's intentional in the Bible. So God is revealing to you like the longing that was in the Old Testament, the longing for this idea that, man, I wish everybody had the Holy Spirit, not just me, you know, because obviously Moses was kind of really frustrated with having to lead the people. You know, he's, imagine if you've ever dealt with people who are unregenerate, meaning not born again, and you're trying to whatever, share the gospel with them or, or whatever, you know, do, do something godly with them. 
and they're just dismissing you. That's what it was like for Moses times thousands and thousands of people. Most of those people did not have the Holy Spirit, right? They weren't, they weren't God. That was the, there's a whole point for that. God was showing you that without the Holy Spirit, mankind is rebellious. You have to have the Holy Spirit. You have to be submitted to God's will. Otherwise, you, you can't do good. And the Old Testament is just countless pictures of that because the Spirit wasn't given freely. There was no precedent for it. And here we have a perfect picture of the longing that that created. Moses said, man, I wish the people were prophets so that everybody could have the Holy Spirit. Because guess what? Back then, only prophets had the Holy Spirit. Today, as a born-again believer, you get that luxury without having to be anointed, without having to be, you know, going through all these special things and have to be part of a certain tribe. You get that luxury as a born-again believer in the church through faith. So just a fascinating thing. Again, this, there's these realities in the Old Testament that were painted, and they're designed to, to create a longing for the revelation that was coming in Christ. And of course, Christ brings that revelation, and it just flips everything on, on its head. Really fascinating. But in Isaiah 44, verse 3, God says, For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. This is foreshadowing the new covenant. Later in Isaiah, in chapter 63, verse 11, 13, it says, Then he remembered the days of old of Moses and his people. Where is he who brought them up from out of the sea with shepherds, with the shepherds of his flock? Where is he who put in the midst of them his Holy Spirit? This is one of the few places where the actual name, the Holy Spirit, is, is named, which is very interesting. Who causes his glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses, who divided the waters before them to make for himself an everlasting name, who led them through the depths like a horse in the desert, they did not stumble. Now, this is very interesting because, again, you have parallel. This is one of those situations where there's distinction, but also layering, right? So if we studied the, if you remember some of those other things we looked at with the angel of Yahweh, how who was the one guiding them through the desert? It was the angel of the Lord. It was Yahweh. But that was the son, basically, looking from the New Testament. And here you have a mention that the Holy Spirit was in their midst. The Holy Spirit was in their midst. Connecting that to dividing the waters, to escorting people through the Red Sea. Now, remember when the Holy Spirit was hovering over the waters? He was involved in creation. And God, in the beginning in Genesis, split the waters above from the waters below. The Spirit did that. He was involved in the creation. Of course, the Son was doing that as well, and the Father was doing that. The whole triune Godhead was creating. But you have, again, it's like you're trying to see something from different angles. And unless you see that all these things are different pictures of the same thing, you'll run into error and, and you won't connect the dots which is a lot of people do. Genesis tells you the Spirit was hovering over the waters. We know that the Word was there in the beginning with God who created the universe, but we know the Spirit was involved in creation as well. So you have different perspectives. In this particular verse with Isaiah, it brings you back to the Old Testament, to Moses in the, well, he's in the Old Testament, but he brings you back to the Exodus, is what I want to say. And the idea that the Holy Spirit was 
put in their midst. Well, who was in their midst all the time? It was the angel of Yahweh. It was the angel of his presence who was there. It wasn't like everybody... This is not saying that everybody in in the Exodus was getting their, was getting the Holy Spirit. Like they were all born again. That's not what it's saying. If, if you didn't have context and you thought this was talking about something in the New Testament, maybe you could probably read it that way. Like, oh, he put the, he put in the midst of them his Holy Spirit. Like, oh, everybody got born again. No, that's not what it's talking about. He put in the midst of them his Holy Spirit. His Holy Spirit was there in the midst of them. But wait a minute, the angel of Yahweh was there. He was the one who was in the pillar of cloud or a pillar of fire and the cloud and who basically escorted them through the Red Sea. But now you have this idea that the Holy Spirit was doing that. Of course, God is triune, so God was doing that. But you have different pictures. Do you see how this works? Different keyholes to the Old Testament that you can see different. Oh, I can see a little bit of this and I can see a little bit more from there. And there is a great parallel with the, with the story of creation, with the Spirit hovering over the waters and the waters being divided. Very... Just so fascinating. It really is. Again, these types of things are just, to me, super, super fascinating. But in Nehemiah, again, another Old Testament prophet, you gave your spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. So the spirit is is given to give knowledge and instruction. The Lord tells you which way to go. There is a, there is a way that seems right to a man but its way leads to death, meaning do not lean on your own understanding. It's the Spirit who gives you instruction. The Spirit gives life. And in this particular case, certainly that the 70 elders that were chosen by God to put some to give them the Spirit so that they could do what? Lead the people, instruct, help Moses do management and leadership. In Ezekiel, this is a pretty famous chapter, Ezekiel 36 Verses 22 through 27, I will put my spirit within you. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate my the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God. Then through you, I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. When through you I vindicate my holiness. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you. Baptism. And you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. Keep this in mind because we're going to look at something in the New Testament in just a second. And from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You cannot obey God or do good or choose the good unless God puts his spirit in you. There's nothing in this verse, by the way, before we continue, that says that you need to do something to be born again. God is not saying when you have faith, I will put my spirit within you. When you turn around, I'm going to do this. Do you see the very fundamental importance? This is another thing that a lot of people are deceived on. It's synergism. It's the idea that you have to do something in order to be born again. And where in fact the Bible teaches you that God is doing the work. He's sovereignly chosen who will be born again. 
And that should be very humbling and encouraging because if you have a relationship with God, that means it wasn't of your own doing and it means you can't foil it. He's going to sustain you. But nonetheless, this is the new covenant. He's going to put his spirit within you. This is announcing the new covenant. Very fascinating. Now, remember this thing we talked about sprinkling clean water because there's an interchange in John chapter 3 between Nicodemus, who was like a Pharisee, a teacher of Israel, a very important person, and Jesus. This is verse 3. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born again when he, how can he be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I have said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes. Again, wind, it's like, this is such a fascinating play of words. We'll get back to it. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from and where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? So this was, this is such a fact, there's so much, you could probably spend a whole study on this, just this entire interchange. When Jesus says the wind blows where, where it wishes, meaning, wind, remember, wind and breath are synonymous words for spirit. The wind is doing what it wishes. It's not under your control. You hear its sound, meaning you can see its manifestations, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes, which is true. You ever just take a walk and the wind comes and you're like, where is the fan? Look around you, like look around in the world. Where is the fan that is making this wind? Where does it come from? And where does it go? It's really fascinating. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So now there's a parallel between the wind which there's a linguistic parallel, and the spirit. The wind blows as it wishes, as he wills. Like those other verses, he does what he wills. It's up to the will of God. So it is, so is it with everyone who is born of the spirit, being born again. Now, Jesus is making a parallel to the verses in Ezekiel that we talked about where the new covenant was being announced by Yahweh, where he's going to put his spirit within people. Being born again is the new covenant. And he's going to sprinkle them with water and, and clean them. This is what Jesus is talking about. People think that this verse is talking about two things. These are two possible options that are very popular. One of them is the Catholic version, which is totally wrong. It's an inversion of the truth. Oh, you have to have a water baptism. Be baptized, baptized as an infant. Otherwise, see, you, you won't make it. Totally wrong. It's not what Jesus is talking about. The other one is kind of more Protestant understanding, which is, well, unless you're born of the flesh, meaning you're born of water, like when you're when a woman's water breaks and you're born of the spirit, I mean, you have to, you have, to have two births. But that is that is just, there's no point why Jesus would say that. That's obvious that you have to be born in order to be born again. That, that's way too obvious. And especially because he's speaking to Nicodemus, who was a very, 
you know, he was an authority. He was a very wise teacher of Israel. And yet, Jesus is saying, you aren't making the connection. You're not making the connection of the new covenant and what I'm talking about. It's here. You got to be born again. This is the new covenant. You have to receive the Holy Spirit. How do I receive the Holy Spirit? Well, glad you asked. You have to have faith in me. That's what it's all about. You see how Jesus comes in to fill the, the not the void, but just like the, the longing that was created through the Old Testament. God initially did, didn't give the Holy Spirit out willy-nilly. There was like, to, when, Elisha, when Elijah was going away and Elisha was asked, what do you want? Famous interchange. Elisha says, please just give me a double portion of your spirit. Like that was the thing to have, which is the Holy Spirit. And God said that ultimately, look, there's going to come a day when everyone is going to receive this. Not everybody in the world, but I'm going to pour out my spirit on people. And I'm going to give you a new heart. You're going to receive a new heart from me. You're not going to, you're going to be made to obey. And you'll enjoy it and you'll want to do it because it's only possible through the Holy Spirit. There will come a time when this is going to happen. I'm going to, I'm going to sprinkle clean water on you. All of these things are going to be associated together. And so Jesus comes in, talks about the wind, about being born again, and basically says, unless you're born of water and the Spirit, meaning unless you are cleansed of your sins by the Holy Spirit through a regeneration of heart, true baptism, which is basically coming to Christ in faith through repentance, that's what the new covenant is. Being born again and cleansed of your sins is not something that happens as an infant when you're sprinkled water. It's also not something that happens as an adult when you decide to get baptized. Because the physical thing, I'm not saying you shouldn't get baptized. I'm saying the physical act of baptism is not what cleanses you from your sins. Because there's a lot of false converts that are getting baptized and aren't having a true change of heart. It is when you repent of unbelief and commit your life to Christ that you are truly cleansed by sprinkling of water. Now, water is also associated with the Holy Spirit a couple times, which is very interesting. Oil is associated with the Holy Spirit. So, again, it's just all so fascinating. But the thing to really take from this, in my opinion, is, again, the parallel between the wind. The wind blows where it wishes. You don't know where it comes from. You don't know where it goes. Meditate on that. When you take a walk next time and it's just a clear day and just this little breeze comes by your face and you just feel it go and it goes somewhere else. And it's like, where did this come from? You ever ask yourself that? It's just, to me, it's so profound. Where is the fan? <laughs> where is the fan that's making this wind happen? You don't know where it comes from and you don't know where it goes. And this is the same way that it is with being born again. We do not cause ourselves to be born again. We do not have life in ourselves. That is the life from the Garden of Eden. But again, all these things are paralleling the new covenant. They, this new covenant was being spoken of and prepared from the very beginning. The Old Testament is speaking of the new covenant where we will receive an intimate connection to God through the Holy Spirit. Now, there's some other important details, a couple final things to look at about the Spirit being personal in nature. Isaiah 48, 16 says, Draw near to me, hear this, from the beginning I have not spoken in secret. Jesus says this, by the way, too. It's another proof that he's Yahweh. 
From the time it came to be, I have been there. And now the Lord God has sent me and his spirit. So you have Lord God and his spirit, two separate things. There's distinction. There's not, I don't want to say separation, but there's distinction. Very, very interesting. In Isaiah 63, verse 10, you have emotional qualities, but they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Another, again, another rare place where you see the actual term Holy Spirit. Because most of the time it's Spirit of God. Therefore he turned to be their enemy and he himself fought against them. So you you can grieve, you cannot grieve a force. Only persons are grieved. The Holy Spirit was grieved. Therefore Yahweh God turned against them to be their enemy and he himself fought against them. You have multiple realities being discussed here. Compare this to Psalm 78 verse 40 where it says, how often they rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. Who is the him in this particular psalm? The him is Yahweh. So Yahweh is being grieved in the desert. But wait a minute. Isaiah 63 verse 10 says, but they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Speaking of the same situation. So who's being grieved here? Is it Yahweh or is it the Holy Spirit? Well, it's Yahweh. The Holy Spirit is Yahweh. The Son is Holy. The Son is Yahweh, and the Father is Yahweh. God is one being existing in three persons. Now compare this to, to the New Testament. Again, New Revelation, 2 Corinthians 3, verse 17. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So we have two things very important here. First one is that God is Spirit. Now there's other Verses, I forget the exact verse, but God is spirit, and we have to worship him in spirit and truth. In this one, 2 Corinthians 3, verse 17, it says, Now the Lord is the spirit. There's other verses in Romans that say the spirit of God is the spirit of Christ. So what do you do with that? Again, you have these verses that show distinction, and you have the verses that show unity. If you aren't able to reconcile these two things and see that they are speaking of the same reality, which to us being limited is a mystery. But if you're not able to reconcile these, then you will either go one direction and say, you see, there's modalism, everything is just one, or you're going to separate things and you're going to go into partialism. Everything, well, you got one third, one third, plus one third, and they all make God. So you have to be able to reconcile two opposites. And, and allow them to dance, the dance of life. You have to, da- you have to allow them to dance in, in your mind together because God shows distinction and God shows unity. The Lord is the Spirit. God is Spirit and we have to worship Him in Spirit and truth. The Spirit of God is the Spirit of Christ. That's Romans, I forget, but it's Romans. So how do you make it that? Well, is the Holy Spirit God? Yes, but He's different. He's distinct from the Son, and also the Father, based on other things that we've looked at. So it's very, very important to see that both of these two things coexist because you're dealing with something that cannot be defined, which is God. God is undefinable. He's revealed things about himself, but you can't put God in a box of your own understanding. It's like the idea that there's a two-dimensional plane and a sphere passes through it. Now, some people have used this metaphor for 
teaching inseparable operations, which I've talked about in the very first episode. That's not a correct teaching. I'm not even going to break it down here because it's it's so confusing. But the idea is kind of, it, it works in, in the same sense because you're seeing how would a circle perceive a sphere passing through their plane? Well, they would say, oh, it's a circle, but the circle is growing and getting smaller. They wouldn't, they would have no concept for a sphere. The same for us. We don't have a concept for how God exists. So trying to fit him into our 3D understanding is only going to lead to problems. But one more verse, this is actually very interesting. It's in the Old Testament, Isaiah 63, verse 9 through 10. We were reading Isaiah 63 earlier, but all the members of the Trinity are in this passage. Check this out. In all their affliction, he was afflicted. He is Yahweh. And the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them and he lifted them up and carried them all the days of, his, of old. But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore, he turned to be their enemy and himself fought against them. You have the entire triune God. Isn't this fascinating? Present in these two verses. In the Old Testament, in all their affliction, he, Yahweh, was afflicted. And the angel of his presence, remember, the angel of Yahweh is Yahweh. He's God, but distinct from God. Of course, only God saves, so the angel of his presence saved them. Literally, the presence of God is in the angel. He's the word made manifest. So, so interesting. In his love and his pity, he redeemed them. But then you have, they grieved his Holy Spirit. Verse 10. Therefore, he, God, triune, turned to be their enemy, and himself fought against them. So he withdrew the Holy Spirit. He brought upon them judgment. The angel of Yahweh brought judgment as well, several times. So you have the entire triune God, a shadow of the triune God. But still, nonetheless, I think this is pretty fascinating. In the Old Testament, very, very interesting. I hope it's been pretty educative for you and edifying to see all these things again, the Holy Spirit is a very, um, you know, not, I'm trying, mysterious figure. That's especially in the Old Testament. Another metaphor that I used is you have like the superstar, I think of a Hollywood super, I mean, again, these metaphors are kind of flawed, but you have a Hollywood superstar, you have the manager, and then you have kind of like the support team, you know, like the tech crew who's doing all the support and all, making sure everything is, you know, great for the concert. The superstar is the one you see that you relate to. He's the face, right? But you don't see the manager. You don't see, you know, the, the support team. And in the same way with the Trinity, you don't see the father, but if you've seen the son, you've seen the father. The Holy Spirit is doing supportive roles that are very, very important. He seals believers. He's the guarantee of our inheritance. He conforms us to the image of Christ. He gives us gifts. We looked at all these things in the Trinity uh, in Salvation episode. You know, he, he testifies, he gives gifts of prophecy and of, of various different things. He does so many things. But because he's a supportive role, because the Holy Spirit isn't the one who became incarnate, the Son became incarnate. But remember, God is spirit, meaning God is a triune being, is spirit. Nevertheless, the Son took on form through the angel of Yahweh and eventually the Incarnation. And the Holy Spirit is unseen, but has been seen, in a sense, through the prophets, 
through the words, through scripture. So he's, he's very mysterious. He doesn't have a form, so to speak, right? And so he tends to be put to the side. He tends to be sidelined because he's not obvious. And most people today are always looking for the obvious. So one challenge I have to you as a result of this episode and one encouragement is to look and learn to look for the non-obvious in your life. Learn to look for the non-obvious and to appreciate what is not immediately obvious, what is not clear, what is mysterious. Learn to see because too many people are focused on what is obvious and it leads them into false theologies, false teachings, low-hanging fruit. The spirit has to be a person. We're going to look at more of this in the next episode on heresies, but the spirit has to be a person for several reasons. One of them being glory is glory is received from one person to another. It's not received from a force. The Holy Spirit helps glorify Christ, helps glorify the Father. The Holy Spirit is not a force. It's a person. He's a person. I keep saying it, but he's a person. And he helps glorify both the Father and the Son. Grieving, emotions, don't happen to a force. Being led into the wilderness to be tempted, like when Christ was basically led into the desert for 40 days, he was led by the Holy Spirit. And there's a lot of problems if you believe that the Holy Spirit is controlled by the Father or the Son. And he's not his own person. We're going to look at all of these situations next time. But one of those situations is the temptation of Christ in the desert and and what happened with that, how the Holy Spirit had to be a person to do that. Christ doing various works by the Spirit, that's also an important point, that the Spirit has to be a separate person that is facilitating that. Very, very important. There's so much more. We're going to look at all of it next time because there's a lot of people who believe that the Holy Spirit is kind of this force or just this metaphysical thing between the Father and the Son. But you have a lot of problems if you deny the personhood of the Holy Spirit. So I hope that today has edified you to see that the Bible has always been consistent, even in the Old Testament. There's shadows of the personhood and the role of the Holy Spirit. Of course, in the New Testament, this is revealed and... We have the full revelation of scripture that we can go back now and go on these little adventures and see what can we find more about the nature of God. So does the Bible teach of a triune God, Father, and Son, and the Holy Spirit? The answer is a resoundingly yes, it does. <laughs>